Amen. You may be seated. So in this, if you have ever read the Gospels before, you will quickly notice that there is actually very little birth narrative. Two of the Gospels kind of paint a couple of chapters of the birth narrative of Jesus. Mark and John skip it all together. That's not to belittle the birth of Jesus, but the writers of the Gospel are not as concerned about how this thing got kick-started off as much as they are the public ministry of the person and work of King Jesus. And so as we look through this today and as we explore these different avenues, (coughs) as we see Matthew begin to paint this picture, it is important for us to gather that information and to realize that from the birth narratives to chapter 3, there's about 30 years that take place. Much of the, the childhood of Jesus, we have to simply assume that he lived in a great tension and paradox of being God in flesh and yet simultaneously submitting to his earthly parents in Mary and in Joseph. So immediately, there's not a a great segue or transition statement. It kind of goes from the birth of Jesus directly into chapter 3 where it says this, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness (coughs) in Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. It's actually Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, when he said, The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was of locusts and wild honey. To kick us off this morning, I want to talk about who is this man named John. John, we learn in the Beth narratives, was foretold of to his parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth. For 400 years, God was silent between what we know as of the Old Testament and the New Testament until an angel of God, Gabriel, spoke to Zechariah the prophet, this man that is of old age, and to his wife, Elizabeth, who was also old in age and was barren. That means she was unable to conceive a child for them. This was not only physically difficult, but this was also a major social issue for this family. And yet God so chose in his sovereignty at just the right moment to speak into Zechariah and to change these people's lives and to forever change our lives as well. He was told of that John would be born. We covered this last month in our Advent series In Luke chapter 1, if you want to flip over there, verses 14 through 17, listen to what it says of this baby who would become a man. And you will have joy and gladness. This is the angel speaking to Zechariah. And many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts and fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Later on, 
He will say this once John is born. Zechariah will say in verse 76, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. Later on in verse 80, he says, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance in Israel. So from what we know from Scripture is as soon as this baby named John, he was inside the womb of Elizabeth, was already filled with the Holy Spirit and commissioned by God to be the forerunner and to be the one that would prepare the way for the coming Messiah, the coming King. Even Jesus says this, Jesus and John, this John, are cousins, and Jesus will later say this of this John. He will say this in Matthew chapter 11, 11, when he would say, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And that is who we're speaking of right here, John the Baptist. We can already see that he must have been from a Southern Baptist church because that's what the Bible says. I'm joking. All right. The Baptist there is actually a terminology that reflects what he does. He is John the baptizer, just like if it was, you know, uh, Matt the pharmacist or Laura the school teacher. Um, that is what the, the scripture is telling us here. This is John's occupation. He is a Baptist, which we will go on a little bit further uh, teaching about that in just a moment. What's really intriguing about this passage in particular are two things. It's one, where is John preaching? And secondly, what is John preaching? The first thing that we can see here, he says, came preaching where? In the wilderness of Judea. In the wilderness of Judea. It could be really easy for us to skip over that small little word there, but it actually has great meaning and significance for us in this text. The wilderness um, inside of the Middle East there around Jerusalem, Judea, that whole area between the, the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. When you think about wilderness, we're, we're thinking about rocky terrain, we're thinking about pretty much anywhere you walk is extremely difficult. And they will often say, historically, that the Middle East and the area surrounding Israel is a physical illustration of what it means to follow God, to follow Jesus. Because everywhere you go, it is difficult to get there. The wilderness here is, is probably barren. It's, it's very scarce. There is a little bit of water. So you obviously have the Jordan River and several other streams and creeks that would gather there. But there are, are very few people that would live in these areas besides shepherds, farmers, and criminals. And yet, this is where John grows up, and this is where he begins to preach and proclaim this message. Man, if you're wanting to reach the masses, and you're wanting to change the course of history, this is probably not where you and I would choose. He is in the middle of nowhere. We would say this in Kentucky, that man, this brother is in the boonies, right? I mean, he's, he, you go to nowhere, and you keep going a few miles, and that's where John is. That's like you coming to me and saying, you know what? I've been called by God 
to go plant a church in Pope, Kentucky. And if you know where Pope is, you're like one of about three people in this room probably, okay? But it's in between Allen County and Gold City, Kentucky, which is also in Simpson County, all right? But it's called Pope, you drive there, you hit it, you're out. All right, there are more cows there than people. And it's like you coming to me and saying, man, we wanna plant a church. I'm gonna start preaching on top of a barn in Pope, Kentucky. And this is the picture that we begin to see of John in this place. See, God called him here to the wilderness. He didn't call him to Jerusalem. He didn't call him to Rome. He didn't call him to New York City or University Town. He called him to begin traveling in the middle of nowhere and preach this message. 700 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah spoke and said, there will come one. There will be this forerunner. There will be this precursor. There will be this one who will announce that the king is coming, that Jesus is coming. And what does John do here in his sermon? He quotes Isaiah, which those Jewish people who were listening to him would have known exactly what he was saying. He was declaring, I am that man. What a bold statement. If you were to stand up today, if you know anything about the book of Revelation, it talks about these two witnesses. And if you were to stand up all of a sudden and go, I'm one of the two witnesses, you'd get laughed at. All right? We'd probably make fun of you. There's probably no way that we're going to believe that about you. And yet John is standing up and he's declaring a 700-year-old prophecy has come true today in my birth. I am that Man, which would mean that all of the history of Israel was about to change. They've been waiting for this and waiting for this advent and waiting and waiting and waiting. And all of a sudden in the wilderness is a man declaring that he is this prophet. See, there is something about the wilderness, ladies and gentlemen, that is extremely important for you and I to understand. When God takes the Israelites out of Egypt, out of the urban area, when he takes them out of the city, where does he take them? Not immediately to the promised land. Not immediately to Jericho. He takes them to the wilderness. See, I don't know about you, but I, spiritually speaking, physically speaking, I love the wilderness. Spiritually speaking, I hate it. Am I the only one that has desert moments with God? Where it seems as though he is nowhere to be found. Where he seems as though, man, your prayers, you keep praying, 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 and nothing seems to be happening. These are seemingly to us wilderness moments. They are a struggle. They are attempting to climb a, a hill seemingly by yourself. They are extremely, extremely difficult. But ladies and gentlemen, from a biblical perspective, you must learn, I must learn to embrace the wilderness, the desert. To God, it is in the wilderness that people turn back to him. It is in the wilderness, it is in the desert, it is in tough terrain where he visits the prophet Moses and declares there is a king that will one day come and rule over his 
people and all things. It is in this moment and in these desert areas, in these barren places with God, where we truly, and he uses those to chisel away everything that does not reflect him and to bring us back to him. This is the will of God. See, there's poor people in the wilderness. There's sick people out in the wilderness. There's people that need hope out in the wilderness. See, when we have prosperity, it becomes our God. But when we become poor in spirit, when we are needing something greater than what we see in front of us, we will find that in those wilderness places, not in the place of plenty. And God, in his sovereignty, has been pointing toward this in all of redemptive history, that the forerunner would come, and he would not come to the middle of the marketplace, but that he would come to where the poor in spirit are, where the weak are, where the criminals are, where the shepherds, the nasty shepherds, these uh, you know, forsaken men, where they were is where God would show up because their ears would be attuned to listen to him. <coughs> and so God begins to use this man. His dress and his diet um, is very reflective of the prophet Elijah. Elijah wore this cloak with camel's hair and a, and a belt. And to the Old Testament, to the believers, the Jewish believers, um, they, they really saw this idea of Elijah as this kind of WWE passionate wrestling kind of guy. If there was ever a man that was filled with the passion of God, or a wild and kind of crazy-eyed, bearded guy that we probably would never be allowed to, to come and to serve as a pastor here, I mean, just this wilderness kind of passionate guy, that is Elijah. And what do we begin to see? A man in the wilderness like Elijah. A man dressed like Elijah. A man who eats like Elijah. A man with a voice, a passionate, stern voice. Elijah was a passionate and stern proclamation. That means to shout the gospel, to call people into repentance. That is the picture of this wild man in the wilderness looking at a bunch of Jews, his brothers and sisters in Judaism, and declaring to them that they need to repent and that the kingdom of God is at hand. Notice in Luke, he said, he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah. This passion is illustrated in the Old Testament. This passion is now illustrated in the New Testament. When we read the New Testament depictions of, the, of John baptizing people in these different rivers, it just wasn't one particular area. It's believed that he traveled and that the New Testament even alludes to several different areas where John would baptize folks and preach this message. The first one that is mentioned in the New Testament where John was baptizing was um, Bethany beyond the Jordan. It's up really close. You've got two major um, lakes there or seas. You've got the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea, and the Jordan runs in between those. 
The first place it's mentioned that John really gets started is up towards the Sea of Galilee. And he begins to preach there and people begin to be baptized. But that's not where Jesus is baptized. We'll get to that next week. Enon near Salem. That's actually halfway between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea on the Jordan River was another place that he was baptizing people. This all has significance. Stay with me. And then lastly, there's a very small stream that pours into the Jordan um, and that's, uh, it's really close to the Dead Sea, actually. Uh, and that's another place where he was doing ministry, and that's where it's believed that Jesus was actually baptized. But what is the significance of that? I'm going to nerd out on you just for a second. The first one that I mentioned, Bethany beyond the Jordan, that's where Elijah hid in a cave. Enon near Salem, the second place that we know where John was baptizing people, um, that is where God uses Elijah to call his next person Elisha, if you remember that story, is in that very moment and in that very place. The last place, the small stream that runs into the Jordan where it's believed where Jesus was baptized. This is so cool. I'm a nerd, I'm sorry. John was baptizing there. And it's in that specific place where it is believed that God sent the chariot of fire from heaven to take Elijah to heaven. Do you see the significance of why John is in these places? Because God is trying to sell us something. God is sending us someone to fulfill the prophecies and to do the work and to prepare the way of the Lord. So now that we know a little bit about John the man, let's talk about John's message. First, he tells us there in verse 2, <coughs> repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He also says later on there, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. We see this in several different places. We see this idea of prepare the way of the Lord. What is John trying to say in telling people, prepare the way of the Lord. Historically, during this time, anytime the king was coming to visit your city, what they would historically do is they would send out a, a proclaimer. They would send out someone probably days in advance to go along the road that the king would be traveling, telling all of the little small villages and ultimately the major city that they were going to that the king was coming. It was to give them a heads up. It was to give them a warning. <coughs> it was to give them an opportunity to celebrate. We see in this picture, what is he saying by prepare the way? He's like, hey, clean up, the king is coming. Prepare the banquet, the king is coming. Literally what they would do, ladies and gentlemen, is they would go out to those roads and they would try to pick up any pebbles, they would try to fix any potholes that may be in the path leading into the city because literally they did not want the king to have a bumpy road to get there. This is what it meant physically to prepare the way of the king. They would also go out into these different areas and streets because criminals like to hang out around roads and streets. Why? Because as people were passing by, they would steal from them. So they would begin to police these different areas along the way. This is what it meant for them to prepare for the king to come. I mean, just think about it. If all of a sudden, whether you like him or don't like him, that's irrelevant. But if they were to tell us today or this week that, that 
<laughs> President Barack Obama was going to show up to Bowling Green. This place would go nuts. We'd be wanting everything to be clean. We'd want everything to be awesome. Why? Because the president is coming. And yet John isn't telling them to pretty up bricks and mortar. John isn't telling them to prepare their homes. John is proclaiming to these people in, a, in the same similar way that he is the forerunner. He is the guy that's coming, and he is going to tell them the king is coming. Messiah is coming. Prepare the way of the Lord. And what is John proclaiming to these people? He's saying, you must prepare your hearts to receive the king. Not your brick and mortar, but the home of your heart. And John is pleading with them to do this. How does he want them to do that? Well, it begins with what he calls repentance, right? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. My prayer this morning is that I know that some of you have grown up in church, and when I use the term repentance, automatically some terms and ideas become relevant to your mind. My heartbeat is that this morning we will see some clarity in what it truly means to repent. See, repentance is not merely the changing of your mind. Repentance is, is not simply you agreeing with the truth. It's, it's not, repentance is, is not just the shame that you feel for your sin, and, and it's not the, the feeling that you get when you've get, gotten caught in sinning, and repentance is not simply confessing that you have sinned. I mean, I don't know about you, but I watched my sister get in trouble a lot growing up. I didn't, but I watched her get it a lot. I got in trouble too, but that feeling of getting caught, like caught red-handed. Anybody ever felt that before? You can drum up some tears. You can feel guilty for that feeling. But as soon as you're no longer grounded, what do you find yourself doing? The same thing. Man, I've been in sinful situations before where I've said, man, I will never do it again. Right? You feel bad. You've had a little bit too much, you know, juicy juice to drink. Or you've been kissing on somebody you weren't supposed to be kissing on or whatever, and you're like, man, I'll, I'll never do this again, right? I mean, you're feeling it. You will even confess it to a brother or sister. Man, you need to keep me accountable. I don't, I'm never going to do this again. I'm never going to drink again. I'm never going to look at bad stuff or watch bad movies or any of that stuff again. It's terrible. I know it's terrible. I know it's horrible. And find yourself, when no one is looking, doing the exact thing thing. That is not repentance. It can, can be confession. It can be agreeing that it is wrong. But repentance is, is, is not just the merely of the changing of mind. It includes that, but it's the changing of the mind, the heart, and action. True repentance changes everything about a person. This is why I preach to you boldly, hopefully, and courageously this morning. If you are professing Jesus, and yet there is no transformation in your life, 
Ladies and gentlemen, you do not know Jesus. And I plead with you, as John would, to repent. Everything in your life must be centered on the person and work of Jesus. And you getting flippantly thinking that, man, this is okay, or we'll slide on this, or slide on this, or slide on this. This is not from God. There should be total transformation upon your life. Your friends should be thinking you are a weirdo because you follow Jesus if they've known you the pre-Jesus moments. And it's not one thing that happens. I know so many people in pastoring you and others, and, and even have to watch this for myself, who are counting on one mere experience at a church camp or a church or in your car a long time ago, and yet there has been no repentance and no change since that initial moment, then may you plead for God to save you today. Because we must ask the question, man, how have you repented this week? How has Eric repented this week? What sin has God brought to the surface this week that I need to turn away from and toward Jesus? And yet there are multitudes upon multitudes of people who are gathering every Sunday in worship gatherings like this all over the globe who are, are claiming Jesus and yet have never repented. And, and John is speaking to the same type of people and he's saying, yes, you repent, turn, follow all areas of your life to reflect, to be able to say, is confession a part of it? Yes, it is a part of it. But it goes well beyond that. It goes well beyond, ladies and gentlemen, a few tears that run down your face in guilt and shame. It is something that God does with inside of our hearts that has external changes forever and ever and ever. Will it be a struggle? Yes. Will there be temptation? Yes. But if you're habitually participating in those same sins and you're claiming repentance, you have not repented. I have not repented. I confess that it's wrong. I may feel bad about it. I may even tell you it's wrong. But God is calling us to something deeper. May if you don't get anything in 2015, may you get this. God still hates the sin in your life. He hates it. <coughs> God is disgusted by sin. God does not think that it is cute. God is holy. God is righteous. God is perfect and he is declaring to us that that we repent in all of the things of our lives Charles Spurgeon one of my favorite dead dudes says this repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin a mourning that we have committed it a resolution to forsake it it is in fact a change of mind of a very deep and practical matter and character which makes the man love what he once hated, and to hate what he once loved. John Piper says it this way, repenting means experiencing a change of mind that now sees God as a true and beautiful and worthy of all of our praise and our obedience. So you see God, and when you see God in true repentance, my prayer for you, my prayer for myself, is that in this next year, we will continue to see God bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Because when we see God for who he is, ladies and gentlemen, you will see who you are compared to that glory and you can't do anything else but 
changed by his grace. But when you have a small view of God, your life will reflect a small view of God. But when you have a big view of God, you will begin to see grace and mercy and long-suffering and the patience and the goodness of God in a way that will transform the way you speak, the way you joke, the things you listen to, and the way that you act. You are not saved by those actions, but those are truly the fruit of those whom have been saved. He tells us that the kingdom of God is at hand. The Israelites, the Jewish people, have been waiting for this for now hundreds, if not thousands of years, for the kingdom of God to come. They've been promised this over and over and over, and now there is a man in the wilderness who is proclaiming what? That the kingdom is at hand. This would have shook the very fiber of the Jewish people. They were under Roman captivity. They had been in slavery and someone begins to whisper, there's a revolution coming. There's a war coming. There's a reformation coming. Ha, ha, have you heard? The king's been born. The kingdom of God is coming. The only problem with this is my buddy Jeremy down in Nashville says, Pastor Jeremy says this, he's like, the, the issue is, is the king that they thought were coming isn't the king that came. And the kingdom that they thought would be established isn't the kingdom that came. See, he was the unexpected king, and it was an unexpected kingdom. See, ladies and gentlemen, the, the Israelites, the Jewish people thought that when the king came, here's what daddy was going to do. Here's what King Messiah was going to do is that he was going to overthrow the Roman government. That he was going to set up his, his kingdom and a new throne and, and a, a, a new palace in the place of Jerusalem. And all of these people who have been berating and killing and, and raping and pillaging these Jewish homes and villages... They were going to pay because the Jewish king is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And yet when Jesus comes this time, we're going to learn through the book of Matthew, this isn't what he does. So that causes major tension within Judaism, major questioning of Jesus that we'll get to, of them saying, are, are are you the king? Are you the Messiah, Jesus? Because you're not doing this the way that we think you should be doing it. Doesn't that sound like a lot of us? I'll just confess to you, my life is not going the way I expected it to go. So I'm not saying it's bad. All right? It's probably better if I could see my life the way that God sees it and the way that God has orchestrated it, it I would realize it was better and I would be happy, and I would be pleased. But from a, a merely earthly, sinful Eric Baker perspective, life is not going the way that I expected it. So what begins to happen? Sin, Satan, and death knows that. Begins to question things. Is God good? Is he right? Is he just? Is he with me? I begin to question things. Man, am, am I really saved? Like, I know I believe that other stuff. Has he really done this? And why is it easier? 
Is this the way I'm living? I'm doing right. I don't beat my wife. She beats me, but I don't beat her. You know, I love my kids, okay? Um, I vote sometimes. I mean, I'm American. That, that gets me saved. All this, you start justifying our lives and saying, God, okay, compared to what I'm doing and what seems to be happening in my life, they're not matching up from my perspective. You're not the king I thought you were going to be. This is how whole Christianity thing isn't turning out like I thought it was going to turn out. And yet God declares that he is God and that he is king and that we are not. But, but it's hard for us, and I need you to get this this morning, put on your Jewish little heads and your little thinking caps, and you got to think like a Jew this morning because they've been waiting for this, and this is what they believe that the king is going to do. And so the Bible tells us what begins to happen. Verse 5, Then Jerusalem and all of Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized uh, by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. So John is out in the middle of nowhere. He begins to preach this really stern message. Repent, 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 repent. The kingdom of God is coming. The king is coming, and you better be ready. You're going to either experience his prosperity, or you're going to experience divine wrath and punishment. So your hearts need to be ready and turned toward him. And what begins to happen? The Bible tells us that all of Jerusalem, Judea, and this is a hyperbole. It doesn't necessarily mean that every physical living person went out to the middle of nowhere, but we do get this idea that thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people began to show up for these church services where John, this wild, crazy-looking man, uh, you know, Hillbilly Jim is who I think of, just standing there yelling, screaming, bearded, going wild, crazy eyes like he's on moonshine, yelling, screaming at these people, repent! And people flock. And as many as were appointed to believe, I believe, because that's what the book of Acts says, confessed. Notice who it is. It's Jewish people. John shows up to church to preach to a bunch of church people. What? Repent. The church people were lost. The ones who knew it, the Torah, the Old Testament, the ones who had it all together. He's, he's looking at these Jewish people and he's saying to them, repent. goes on further. People were traveling all these harsh conditions again, by the thousands probably, to get there. And what's taking place once they get there? They're being baptized. In the Greek, it's baptizo, right? It, it means to immerse. That's why Southern Baptists and um, some other denominations and things, we, we dip people in the water. It is to represent a, a full immersion, to be fully covered over in water. But ladies and gentlemen, there's something cool here as well, but a lot of times in Greek language, this is also the term that, it, it, that is meant to drown or a flood. In essence, that Noah and the flood that came was an earthly baptism. It is a call to die. 
John is looking at them. He's looking at church folk, right? I mean, some of you guys have been to first, second, third, fourth, fifth Baptist church, or you grew up, you know, screaming Pentecostal or Methodist or whatever it is. You know all the Bible stories. You went to children's church where they had a felt board. You know, anybody else go to felt board church where they slap David and Goliath up there on the felt board? This is, you know, pre-gospel project, pre-Awana. Like, you know all of this stuff. And, and John is stepping up as I, I hope that in some way by the power of the Holy Spirit can step before you, speaking to myself and speaking to you and declaring that baptism is not just merely this idea and a cool thing that you get a video of and a DVD of so that you can show all of your friends because your baptism is less about you and the person dunking you than it is anybody else in the room. Baptism and calling to repentance is a physical call for you to die. To die to what? To die to the old way of living. To die to the things that you lust and care for more. To die to the things that you put put on, on, on the throne where only God can reign from. And John is crying out in the wilderness, repent for the kingdom of God is here. And I'm going to physically show you that by through the confessing of your sins, I want you to, to physically die. To show these people you are dying to your old way of life. This is why a lot of times when we baptize people, we say now, pre-cross and resurrection, we bury you with Jesus. When Jesus died, that old man died inside of you. But may you be risen. If we really like to church, you, church it up, we say, and, and walk in the newness of life, Right? But it's a declaration of, of death. And so when, when people, friends, family members of mine claim, are claiming Jesus and yet there's, there's not the stench of death following after them, it deeply concerns me. Guess who gets a hold of this? Verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, they're intrigued. He said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from those stones to raise up children from Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So again, it begins to catch word. And, and the political, the upper crust of Judaism, the Pharisees and the Sadducees begin to catch wind that these sorts of things are taking place out in the wilderness. And they become curious. And so what do they begin to do? They begin to go out there and to visit and to listen. Sit on the back row. Okay? They become consumed. They want to know, what, it, what does this mean for us? Who is this king? What does it mean for our stature politically see the pharisees they they were they were these people that were extremely religious they they literally their name means the separated ones they are the ones that that knew all of the old testament and even added oral tradition to it to the point where they physically 
I mean, we're just very much legalized and, and had a religion of legalism. And they were concerned at what this guy in the middle of nowhere was preaching. The Sadducees, they were the more liberal types, and, and they were very political. They did not agree with the Pharisees. You can kind of picture Republican and Democrat here. The Sadducees did not agree with the Pharisees and their oral traditions. See, because the Sadducees were in cahoots with the Romans. They had power because they were friends with the Romans. And if a new king comes to town and overthrows the Romans, what does that mean for our power? It goes away. So you want to get in a fight, punch their mom, steal their money, or take their fire, their power. That's a surefire way to get you in a fight. And those latter two things were beginning to take place in the transfer. And, and what is the thing here? What's interesting about this is that John is saying to them, being religious, guess what? Not enough. Being political, is, it's, it's, it's not enough. Having great theology. Some of us in this room need to confess of allowing theology, which you should have good theology. The Bible says, have sound doctrine. But ladies and gentlemen, sound doctrine is not God. You can believe in a, a six, seven-day creation if you want to. You can, you can believe in all of the verbatim, literal translation of the Old Testament if you want to. You can believe, and you should believe, in, in the virgin birth of Jesus. You should believe that Jesus is, is the only way. You can be a five, six-point Arminius, five, six-point Calvinist. You can believe in a rapture, not believe in a rapture, whatever it is. And you can have all of the right theology and split the gates of hell wide open. John is looking at very religious people, people who know the Bible, especially the, the Old Testament, better than you and I. And he's saying it's not enough. Notice to what he says. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Because what do the Jews believe? This is why this is so ridiculous. Why do we need to repent? We're Jewish. We get into heaven free card. We stand before the pearly gates one day, wave our Jewish ID here, and we get in. And yet, what is John saying to these people? That is a lie. It's a lie. Do not presume. You, ladies and gentlemen, cannot get to heaven riding on your mama and daddy's shirt tails. You cannot get to heaven being a Southern Baptist, being a Methodist, or being any of those other great denominations that are out there. You cannot be uh, saved merely on something that someone else has done unless his name is Jesus. And that's what he's declaring. He said, man, you can't be good enough. You can't be smart enough. You can't be good looking enough. All of these things, because what does he tell us? Even now the ax is laid to the root. The idea of a root is a very common theme throughout the Old and New Testament, and especially a lot of times in reference to the nation of Israel. And what is he saying? The ax is laid to the root. God is coming. The king is coming. And when he comes, he's, his, his acts of judgment is laid against the tree. And if people are, are, are not 
producing fruit by the grace of God that reflects true repentance, they're cut down. They're cut down. He goes on here to say, I baptize you with water and for repentance, but he, he's going to be pointing to Jesus, who is coming after me, King Jesus, after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will be baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John again points to a picture that they would commonly see, especially out in the wilderness probably. And he's pointing to King Jesus. He's pointing to the Messiah. And he's saying that when he comes, he's, he's coming with, it's a winnowing fork. It, instead of having a pitchfork, has four points. A winnowing fork is made out of wood typically, and it has three points. And they would take the wheat and the grain, and they would put them into these big piles. And over here, they would start a fire. And they would try to figure out where the wind was blowing, and that's where they would stand. And the guys would come in with the winnowing forks, and they would scoop up the wheat and the chaff, that's the shell casing, and they would throw it up into the wind. Naturally, because the seed is heavier, it falls back down to the ground, but the chaff flows through the air and lands where? In the fire to be burned up. And John is saying that when the king comes, it is both his love and his divine justice and wrath I've told you this before. If you try to make God's love greater than his wrath, then you don't know the God of the Bible. He is equally as wrathful and divine, just, as he is loving. And we see it even in this picture. As he tosses those items into the air, and as the chaff goes and goes into the fire, into hell, it is consumed. But the seed falls to the ground. What's awesome and what's gracious is that all of us started out as chaff. But through divine mercy and grace and the sovereign favor of God upon unworthy people, he, he takes that and he makes that into seed. And very clearly, this is thick stuff, I know, to start out your year, but you need to know this. Hell is real. But God is bigger, and Jesus holds the keys to death and to life and to hell itself. And he has come to absorb, he came to absorb you and I's sin. And when we look upon that, and when he places the seed of faith into us, we can't help but repent and to turn from our evilness and becoming, as the Bible would tell us, that we were once children of wrath, but now we are the children of God. This is a powerful, thick text. Matthew plays no games here. The cute story is over. It's death and it's life. It was then and it is today. This is no laughing matter. This is serious. Get your house in order because this is what we know. Jesus came and he came as a peasant. He came as a baby wrapped in his mama's swaddling claws. He, he, he was probably very gentle. He's probably meek and mild. He was very gracious toward the sinner. His patience was ever, ever ending. 
Yet when Jesus returns again, we are in a very similar situation. Because now we wait once more for the return of Jesus. But now we have the book of Revelation and other passages throughout the New Testament that paint a very different picture of Jesus. And you're either in or you're out. You're either his, his son, his daughter, his prince, his princesses, his children. Or you are lost and undone without him. But you, like these Jewish folks, me, like these Jewish folks, must take the blinders off of our eyes. Have a deep evaluation this morning of our hearts. A few things in, in, in application. One is we must learn to be humble. Humble like those earlier Jewish people who were willing to say and confess their sins. May my prayer for Mission Church in this next year and always is that we will be a safe place that no matter what you have done, that this will be a safe place and that your church family here would be a safe place for you to confess that sin. It takes a man of humility, a woman of great humility to do that. We should also pray that we would be humble like John. What does he say there? They begin to question John later and saying, are you him? And John keeps telling them, nope, I am not him. Even in this passage, he wants to clearly separate himself from King Jesus, from the Messiah. And what does he say? I am unfit to even carry the Messiah's sandals. Ladies and gentlemen, during this time, when you're wearing flip-flops everywhere you go, and there are not sewer systems, this is why feet washing was so important to these people when you walked into their home. Typically, they had a servant or a pail of water sitting right next to the door for you to immediately to wash your feet because they were disgusting. And what does John say in this passage? From a humble standpoint, you would never ask someone to carry your shoes. And John even says, I'm, I'm unworthy to even carry the Messiah's shoes. May we be people of great Humility. As I mentioned earlier, embrace the desert. God strengthens his people in desert places, in the wilderness. He changes the course of history. In a few weeks, we'll see where does Jesus go when he starts his ministry. He goes to the wilderness to hear from God. In a very physical way, can I encourage you this week? I know a lot of you may have some time off. And maybe you can't go somewhere. I want to encourage you this week to do one of two things. To get up hours before you normally do. Even if it's just one day. And if it's 70, sit outside. With Bible in hand. And watch as the sun comes up. To have a moment of stillness. A moment of solitude. A moment maybe in the wilderness. If you have time, man. Find a park. Go to a farm. 
Go somewhere by yourself, just for a few moments. Dad, watch the kids. Moms, watch the kids. Take turns. Go somewhere, sit in the wilderness, especially if you feel like you're in a wilderness moment. Pray for God to speak. Leave your phone in the truck and go and seek God. Do not be like the Sadducees and the Pharisees who merely attend religious gatherings to be entertained. If that is you this morning, I call you to repentance. Ladies and gentlemen, just because you attend a worship gathering does not mean that you belong to Jesus or that you belong to that local church. There is death in following after Jesus, and there's denying and death of yourself in belonging to a local church. Satan attends a worship gathering every Sunday morning. He goes to Bible study. He knows that Jesus is the king. Don't be like that. Don't ride the pond. Go all in. Don't merely go, and it can be really easy. We've got really good at, at entertaining. And you know, again, a confession. You know what I want to do? I want to entertain the heck out of you guys, because I want our church. I want more people to come to see the sideshow. And that's not godly. And we've become really good at that, of just drawing a crown to be entertained. My fear is that this entertainment can lead to death. And we can nod our heads, we can sing the songs, we'll put money in an offering plate, and not know Jesus, but be really consumed with the consuming of Christianese and Christian things. Wage war against that. I encourage you to, by grace of God, to repent daily. Pray that God would reveal to your self and through healthy relationships with others? Do you see anything in me? If you're married, that's a great thing to ask. Do you see anything in my attitude? Do you see anything in my responses that do not reflect God? God, bring to my surface, bring to my knowledge these things, but also to my brothers and sisters in Christ, bring, make them aware and make them feel comfortable and love me enough to call me out on it. Repentance is not a one-time happening, but it should be, by God's grace, a daily event. And then lastly, can we be a little bit more like John the Baptist? In my giftedness, In study, I've come to realize that I'm more of a prophet than anything. Not a foretelling of the future. But that my calling in, in, is that prophets throughout the, the Old and New Testament were these men and women who a lot of times spend a lot of time in the fringes. Spend a lot of time not in complete darkness, but kind of seeing the sh things in the shadows. And then their responsibility is to know that these things are happening and to bring them to the light so the other brothers and sisters can see them. 
That's why I study a lot of culture. That's why I have a tendency just in my makeup to kind of have discernment and to see things. These, these are giftedness from God. It's just the way that, that God made me. I've kind of just always been like that since I was a Christian. Other, other people are really good evangelists. Other people are really good at shepherding. And, and when you go to the hospital, they can hold your hand and look you in the eyes and you just feel like Jesus is in the room. I got callous carpenter hands. You don't want to hold my hand. All right? Not very good at that. But some of you are. Some of you are great teachers, better teachers than I am. Some, some of you are going to be better church planters than, than I am. Uh, some of you have been given this giftedness in mind is to see things that the church believes are in the darkness. And my responsibility for this congregation is to bring them to light. And I need you to do your giftedness and for you to do your giftedness. And when we all do that, that's why the Bible calls us um, a body made up of many parts. And we bring it all together. We encourage and spur one another on. But you know what? I believe that all of us in some ways are called to be like John the Baptist. In every aspect of our life. Not that you have to start wearing, you know, camel hair clothing. Unless that comes in. If it comes in, my wife will be the first one wearing it. So you can just ask her. They were trying with those ugly boots that came out a few years ago. I'm not saying you got to eat grasshoppers. Okay, I'm not down with that, though I do like honey. However, that every one of us in this room at Mission Church would be like John the Baptist in this way. That we would be consumed with pointing people towards the true King. In great humility and compassion and love for Him and our neighbor enough to say, hell is real. God is greater. Turn from your way of wickedness. Pursue after Jesus. And whether that's some of you little quiet voices, or some of you who can bark and yell like me, that God would use every one of us because that is the greatest message on the planet. There is a way. And you didn't make it. But he did. And his name is Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, God.